newspapers or you know daily publications traditionally labeled opinion as opinion. What has happened since print, the decline of print publications, the print newspapers, and the rise of partisanship in the country, and the, I'm in the Fox News camp, I'm in the MSNBC camp kind of world, is that opinion, I believe, really began to creep into news coverage. Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, we visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions, and whose experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. The very first amendment to the U.S. Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. In the past 10 years, the role of newspapers and print media in general has been under attack, whether from financial forces due to online news, media conglomeration, and accusations of political bias and fake news. How do media professionals face these challenges, both to their industry as well as how they impact the future of democracy itself? Are there guiding principles and values that can help illuminate these stresses and fractures and provide meaningful hope and guidance for the future? Well, today on Intersections, we have with us a journalist who has worked in the industry for over 35 years. Donald Miller has served as the managing editor at the Santa Cruz Sentinel and is currently the opinion page editor at the Sentinel, Santa Cruz Sentinel in California. Donald Miller, welcome to Intersections. Thank you. Um, why don't we just start with how you got started in the field of journalism? Kind of started late in life. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a writer since I was a kid and uh, was always, this is really dates me, but I was a newspaper reader as a young person. And what uh, ended up in, in other fields, including real estate and, and construction and things like that, and kind of went through some struggles and ended up traveling around the country a little bit. And then um, landed on a radio station in of all places, Oklahoma city, not that I'm from Oklahoma, but I had some friends there and I was uh, kind of traveling around. So I ended up at a radio station, in Oklahoma city doing a public affairs program as well as disc jockeying, even though I don't have a voice for radio. And when I got back to California, I uh, thought, Oh, well, I can get a job somewhere, maybe in radio. There we go on radio right now. But it turned out that wasn't true. So I ended up working uh, back uh, selling in, in a retail industry, just trying to survive in Santa Cruz. And the ad salesman uh, for the Sentinel used to come in and sell us ads. And I begged him for a job just to cover uh, prep sports, high school sports, essentially. Uh, I just said I'd do anything. So what I, he, they got me on there and I started covering high school games. I was probably 31 years old. And... Uh, uh, started doing that and working my day job. So I would work the day job and then go cover sports for the Sentinel. And within a, you know six months or so, they started to give me more assignments uh, and eventually uh, offered me a job. So a full-time job. It was working in the features department and I started writing like crazy. I love to write. I've always loved to write. I've never had a problem writing. So uh, started out and then I just continued to work it for many, many years, but at the Sentinel mainly and in the Monterey Herald. And what attracted you to being involved in the press? Like I said, I like to write. And if you're a writer and you want to see your work published and you want to see your name in print, especially as a young person, in those days, newspapers, hey, you could get as many assignments as you wanted. And the Sentinel, uh, at least in the 1980s, was allowing quite a bit of creativity at the time. I was able to write all sorts of different stuff, uh, including columns and whatnot on that. I've always been interested in news and politics and civic goings on. So, uh, you know, that always attracted me. And then like a lot of people, you want to have an impact on the world around you. And journalism is a way uh, to do that by covering things that normally people aren't going to know about. So I see. And so when you started working on features, what was it in that particular, what kind of 
for our audience, what is what is a features writer? It used to be, and that's that, that that's also that's a newspaper term. So features would be like food and entertainment, but what I would write on were like travel pieces. I'd go around the county and I just meet people, and I'd go to you know whatever up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, or I'd go down into the Pajaro Valley and I'd go to towns and I'd spend some time down there with a photographer, and you know write up pieces about the history of the, of the community as well as present day issues in there. And it really allowed me to have quite a, a viewpoint of Santa Cruz County. Uh, and I enjoyed that a lot. So that in those days, that kind of stuff, you weren't covering just basic news of local government and taxation issues and crime. Um, you were, I was able to branch out a little bit, so. I see. Um, as you started, you're getting more involved in, in you know, the local newspaper, what did you, what did you see as your as your role and your responsibility as a journalist? How did you kind of begin to wear that role that you you were playing in the community? Well, I think, you know, at least the way I was, uh, I guess, tutored, so to speak, from the people that I was working with uh, at the Sentinel, especially in the 1980s. Um, you know, you had a, a responsibility, a civic responsibility. There was there was no ifs, ands, and buts about it. I mean, you were not to introduce opinion into news articles, and you were to uh, essentially treat people with respect and be honest, and and you know try again to uh, to shed light uh, on on community issues as well as tell the truth about things. And you know that came to a head in the 1989 earthquake. Uh, by then, I was, of course, a news reporter and was also working some news editing shifts. And so I can still, you know, some things never leave you. And I can still remember working at the Sentinel the night of the earthquake when the ceiling caved in. And, you know, we ran out onto Pacific. Uh, or there was screaming, people dying. You know, it was, it was, it was quite a scene. And in the aftermath of that earthquake, a lot of news coverage you know, was to come out of that. And it was, it was an epical time in, uh, in Santa Cruz. Did that change your approach at all as a journalist after that event? Um, yes and no. I mean, the Mercury News, the San Jose Mercury News, now part of the same news group that we're in, the Sentinel's in, won a Pulitzer Prize for their earthquake reporting, and the Sentinel did not. Uh, that, was, that changed my approach in a competitive sense that we wanted to do better uh, and tell stories that, you know, we had a pretty robust staff. Uh, for many, many years, up until about 10 years ago, we had a lot of reporters. We had we had the talent to do it, whether we had the leadership and direction, who knows. But, uh, you know, I wasn't reporting earthquake stories per se. I had been off on other issues and uh, began to work more editing shifts in those days, which was the way to make a decent living at a newspaper. You had to get into editing because reporters were, were not paid well. Hmm. Have there have you had uh, or developed any um, core values or beliefs that kind of guided you as you've as you've been a journalist in all different roles in in the community? Journalism did not form my core beliefs. My core beliefs were uh, formed out of my faith, um, which hopefully has guided me all those years, up and down. You know, I mean, I'm not I'm not here to pretend that I've been. Uh, an exemplar of, of my of my faith and beliefs, but at the same time, that's where my core values come from. Um, not getting too caught up in the in the back and forth of daily journalism and the partisanship, which we now see today, has just become endemic, you know, in this country. So, and could you talk about your spiritual journey, these core beliefs that that you've developed. Well, when I was struggling back in the late night, I was not raised in a Christian household. Uh, and when I had uh, some, a lot of struggles and financial struggles and ended up moving around and taking jobs here and there just to survive, uh, I ended up at a, at a church in the San Lorenzo Valley and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at that at that time, that was before I got into journalism. 
and thinking, well, maybe things will finally turn around for me. Like a lot of new Christians who are struggling, you think that's going to make the difference in your life. And it did, in the sense, I, I believe God opened up the doors for me to be able to uh, get into a field that I loved, enjoyed my career very much. It was never like work to me, uh, you know, so, but it took a number of years uh, after I became a Christian for that to happen. Uh, and I, you know, I would pray daily, really for looking for a break, looking for an opening in life to, to begin to, to come out of this, what I considered was a long slump. Uh, but it took about four or five years, and that did forge, uh, uh, I think, an inner strength in me uh, as a journalist, too, where I wasn't, uh, wasn't prey or prone to the, the various whims and, uh, and you know, a daily events that can take a lot of people down. And, and you know, journalism is like any field where people bring their past experience into it and, and their personal struggles and their family issues and all that. And, and you know, it's, we saw a lot of people fall and, and severely, uh, even on our Sentinel staff. It was, it was always a challenge. And so trying to maintain at least a sense of inner peace and equilibrium through that was important for me. Some ups and downs. I had some some major issues, and I made some mistakes uh, in print that you know I had to apologize in print for. Uh, and I think I was able to do that out of my 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 faith too, without uh, being devastated by that. You know, it's a hard thing to do to apologize, and uh, I had to do it several times. Could you share about some of the things you felt as a journalist you needed to apologize for? Those things that I can remember. I mean, I remember doing a major article on a, a gentleman in Santa Cruz who had a long history here, uh, both in the surfing industry and other things, and I got his last name wrong. I'll never forget that. And it was his one chance to be, in those days, that except for your obituary, that was your one chance to make the newspaper. I mean, to get your name in print, to be known in the community. And I got his name wrong. And I didn't, in those, it wasn't, we didn't have a digital edition this was in the late 80s, and I had no way to change it. It was there forever in print like that. So I'll never forget that. I had to call him. I went and uh, wrote a small article in the newspaper. I just, I, from that day on, I learned how to ask people how to spell their name. <laughs> Not make that mistake. It's the strangest lesson. Hmm. Probably the, the biggest thing that happened to me was an issue at UCSC. Uh, with the chancellor there. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail. I don't want to impugn her memory. She ended up dying a tragic death. Uh, and it was a lot of controversy around that. And I took a rather mean-spirited swipe at uh, some of her issues, lifestyle, uh, and kind of did it from that kind of Christian looking down on people who don't, you know, meet my standards kind of way. And there was a huge reaction to that. Mm. Um, we actually had to have, a, I had to have a host a community meeting on it and, and listen to people about how it hurt them, which I thought was the right thing to do. And I wrote a subsequent column, uh, essentially saying, you know, I'm sorry. I did that. It's, this is uh, that's probably 20 over 20 years ago to more than 25 years ago, but it was, it was a, a quite a moment, right? Mm. Yet they didn't fire me. So <laughs> what, what did you, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned how kind of had to do with your beliefs, your, your Christian beliefs and, and what you I thought wrote. it did. It really I mean, didn't have anything to do with my Christian beliefs. It was a misreading of the gospel message in my opinion. So could you talk a little bit more about that? I don't want it too much because I, that person's been dead for a number of years. And I don't want to, um, you know, it's just, it's, I just not, don't feel not, not about, not about her, but about your own beliefs and how that intersected in that situation. Well, it was, it became, you know, and this is again, 
a, a sense of morality based on a very strict reading. I don't, I don't, the word fundamentalist gets overused and it's become a pejorative, but uh, it was a, it was a very strict kind of Old Testament legalistic belief about others' lifestyle choices. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that came up for me this, this past week, writing about abortion, for instance, again, as a Christian, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult place to broach. Um, you know, I have my own personal opinion on that. But I had to also represent the newspaper's position on that. And that's always a, that's a fine line. You are representing an organization uh, within the community and, and a voice that may not be as trusted as it once was, but it's still, it's still an important voice. Um, so it's interesting those things still come up. And I, I wrestled with that this week quite a bit. Mm. Well, the whole... Um, often culture war that that Christians, people of faith have sort of been that's been going on in our country for the last, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Seems right. like what you're describing is sort of part of that, which is still going on. We have in 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 media and in politics, of course. Do you feel as as a Christian still in as part of the opinions, as, as kind of the editor of the opinions page in the paper, as a Christian, has your your views of your beliefs or your approaches changed as a journalist over the years? Yes. Yes. I mean, I probably would not have written the, the abortion uh, editorial I'm talking about, which I think appeared today or yesterday. Can't remember. Um, I probably wouldn't have written a few years ago. Uh, essentially it's about a state. It's a ballot measure proposition 31. Um, and I probably just wouldn't have, would have declined. I just wouldn't have done it. Uh, this time I, I wrote it, you know, whether I agree with it and whether I agree with the paper, with the stand that I took. See, there's, this sounds odd, but this is what it was. I, What's Proposition 31? The paper standing in the community, I felt need this to represent the community and the other members of the editorial board, I needed to essentially say something that I may not totally agree with. And I don't think I could have done that before. What is Proposition 31 that you're referring to? Proposition 31 is the an abortion measure, which essentially says that in California, uh, there shall be no laws at all, essentially allowing abortions uh, and giving some funding for that and that the state will become a sanctuary too for people who want abortions. Do I agree with that? No, <laughs> not particularly. Though I can see, though I have some sympathy for people and I've talked to a lot of people about it and did talk to several, you know, a lot of people about this. I, you know, you can say, well, gee, as a Christian, you should just absolutely demand that your opinion become the one that sways in that. And I, no, wasn't gonna, I, I, having taken on the role of opinion editor, I need to reflect the newspaper standing in the community and what a majority of the people felt. And I wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. I would have been a lot more hardline on it. Is that wrong? I don't know. Maybe that's, that's the decision I made nevertheless. Uh, and I, you know, trying to encompass the sympathies and the beliefs of people who are affected. And I, if I would have come out the other way, I think it would have been extremely hurtful to a lot of people as well. So I you know, just have to weigh that. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of people of faith are wrestling with issues like that when, when they're in a public role, like being a journalist in a community and how to, how to balance personal convictions, personal beliefs with your role um, as, as a journalist. Right, right. That, that is an easy well, those have always been issues that have come up, especially since I've been in the editor, editor position and I've written a lot of editorials for this newspaper and for the Monterey newspaper. They come up all the time. They come up when you're doing election recommendations. They come up when you're dealing with people in civic leadership and their character, you know, and, and learning how to, you know, not, you're not going to get perfection ever. You're never going to get the perfect answer. And, you know, trying to 
balance the greater good, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not one. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to KSQD uh, this evening and the program is intersections. And we're talking to Don Miller, who is the opinion editor uh, at the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Um, you had mentioned about your, your beliefs and, and then journalism. And could you talk a little bit more about how you see um, your, your beliefs, your spiritual values intersecting with the field of journalism? Because I think so many times that just brings up a lot of emotions, both from people of faith and how they perceive the media, as well as people maybe of no faith and how they perceive um, people of faith in the media. How do you navigate that in your own personal belief system, your spiritual beliefs, and your work as a journalist? Well, for one thing, I'm trying to think if I ever met another person with Christian faith until very recently at the Santa Cruz Sentinel, at least when I was the editor and had quite a you know staff of 50 people or so. I don't recall anybody being a believer there at the time. <laughs> or if they were, it was just, you know, at church on Sunday, because my I was taught to do that kind of belief system. So it was always kind of an outlier. And for years that caused me, I think, to um, suppress that, I guess, and not, you know, not try to stand out from the crowd. Beginning in the early 2000s, when uh, I returned to the church, because I had left for a number of years, uh, I'd been in a a different uh, wing of Christianity, let's say, for years, and some issues came up. Uh, when I got into a uh, evangelical church uh, and went through, uh, you know, I felt a spiritual awakening, I wanted to tell the whole world about it. And unbelievably, I mean, to me, looking back on it, I was just reading some of the stuff I wrote back in the, from probably 2004 up until maybe 2000, I don't know, 16, and still do occasionally write on it. Uh, I wrote a series of, of columns uh, centered on my faith, and it caused some community uproar, and, and people on the staff were uncomfortable with it, I know. I don't know why they let me do it. I have no idea. Maybe because I was the managing editor at that time, not the editor. But uh, I wrote a lot on that. And I look at it today, and it's like, wow, I can't believe I was able to do that. Um, and I've kept a lot of those articles. Uh, people were, a lot of people were not happy with it, but a lot of people were happy with it. A lot of people who are believers in the community said, wow, we can't believe that that stuff like that appeared in, in a mainstream newspaper. And yeah, so it was yin and yang. And I was invited to speak at churches, including Santa Cruz Bible. Uh, and, you know, that Chamber of Commerce events and other events. And I also had to deal with people in the community who were very uncomfortable with it, including some advertisers. Um, yeah, that's what I remember about that. But I still try to write several faith-based columns a year. Uh, and I feel like that's a voice that's missing in daily journalism, if not absent completely. And there's a, almost a total lack of understanding among journalists of people of faith. Hmm. Much less uh, sympathy. And the culture, I want to add that the recent events and the culture wars and the partisanship in our country now just have just made that worse because a lot of people in journalism now look at Christians as essentially January 6th insurrectionists. You know? I mean, that's really a belief that you can just sense it out there, right? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did want to ask about, you know, just the last 20 years, you know, particularly the last, you know, 10 years or so, um, you know, the rise, how journalism has changed. There's a big change in the rise of opinion journalism and, um, you know, people kind of confused about what, you know, professional journalism is versus opinion journalism. And um, how, how do you, what are some guidelines that you could give to, the listeners who are trying to figure out the difference between opinion journalism and, and real journalism. Right. Well, newspapers, right. Newspapers or 
you know, daily publications traditionally labeled opinion as opinion, as we do in the Sentinel. What has happened since uh, print, the decline of print publications and print newspapers and the rise of partisanship in the country and the, and the you know, I'm in the Fox News camp, I'm in the MSNBC camp kind of world, uh, is that opinion, I believe, really began to creep into news coverage. Because part of the reason is who goes into journalism today. And part of the reason is because people who are working in whatever the newspaper field is called today, since it's not certainly just print, most of it has gone digital, uh, is that they saw that to retain viewers, eyeballs, readers, you needed to take a stand. And if people disagreed with you, they weren't going to uh, subscribe to your publication, whether that's online or in print or whatnot on that. So I think there was, there's been several factors behind that, but it's certainly after 2016, after the 2016 election was ran rampant. I mean, it just became, I don't know what to believe anymore, you know, so. And I've seen some retrenchment of that in the last year or so, and sort of a realization that, that probably went too far. Um, as for journalists themselves, um, what was once, and I think I talked about this when I did uh, a church interview a few months back, what was once a field that was not considered a profession, but was considered a craft or a trade, much like bricklaying, uh, began to attract people with advanced university degrees. And I think we know, I'm not, you know, trying to put down university, I'm just saying that the people who come out of university have very, very liberal ideas, politically liberal ideas, and very much uh, believe that, that there is, you know, a, a greater truth out there, and that is the truth that agrees with what they were taught. And, you know, and it attracted a different kind of person to journalism than people, you know, we used to have people who started as printers and be, later became writers, journalists, you know, at the Sentinel. I mean, they came from all sorts of different fields hmm. uh, into that. And now it's, you know, people with, you know, masters in, in public policy. So hmm. it become you become, and so what happened was I think, and it's been an unfortunate trend and, and is that a lot of uh, journalism then began to become an unofficial wing of government, which is the last thing it should become, and began to uh, parrot the ideas of official government. Not so much the regime of 2016 to 2020, of course, but certainly that after the 2020 election, when uh, Joe Biden was elected, I think a lot of journalists have become cheerleaders for that administration. They, they believe that's to, to save this country. I mean, I understand people believe that very firmly. But, um, it's just been, it's just different. I just never would have ever gotten in, never would have ever felt that relationship with, with local government or local, you know, uh, local institutions. Police coverage is a good example. I mean, back in the day, I mean, yeah, you had you knew the cops on the beat always if you were covering crime, but you weren't an unofficial part of police, or you weren't an opponent of police in in, in either case. You know, you had to be able to to some do do some tough reporting on that. When you become seen, when it when you become an opponent or a proponent of either side, then it becomes very very difficult to do objective reporting, and you lose the trust of your viewers, readers on that. So you feel like most of the people you've seen enter the journalism field in the last 10 plus years have a particularly particular political agenda? A 
know if it's an agenda. I think it's their own belief system. I mean, it, I guess it can could be looked at as an agenda, uh, you know, especially today after, you know, with, with what's going on politically, I think, I think a lot of journalists believe they have to do whatever it takes to stop a certain movement from uh, taking over this country. So, yeah, I think, I guess that could be seen as an agenda, but I think it comes out of a, a, a belief that in the perfectibility of human systems, which is a Christian I absolutely do not believe in, and the perfectibility of human beings, which I absolutely do not believe in. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that if you just have enough good government programs and just start kids in school soon enough, and if you just, they just get the right kind of learning and they just learn about the right kind of history, then you're going to have this, you know, this new era of uh, peace and goodwill that'll, that'll come out of that. And I think history teaches us that's not going to happen. Hmm. And you haven't and seen the Bible. Cer- Bible certainly teaches us that. Right, right. Sure. And you, so you haven't seen people going into journalism that more have a, a conservative bias? I guess they do. If they work for Fox News, they might. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably 95%. I could be 90, but it's got to be in the, in the higher echelon <laughs> who would identify themselves as liberals or Democrats or whatever, you know, or progressives. Today, the term is progressives, of course. Yeah. You're listening. So that term comes out of Santa Cruz. It's interesting that Santa Cruz had progressives back in the 1980s before it became this national Bernie Sanders type of movement. The, the movement that came out of UC Santa Cruz and took over city government in the 1980s in Santa Cruz labeled themselves as progressives. And I never used to hear that anywhere except for Santa Cruz, maybe in San Francisco a little bit. Uh, until, you know, the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, adherents began to, uh, to show up. So, yeah. You're listening to Intersections on KSQD-FM, and we're talking with Don Miller, a journalist at the Santa Cruz Sentinel, who's currently the opinions editor. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that have that you've seen that have been facing small town newspapers that I know you've experienced over the last over your 30 plus years in the field. What kind of changes have you seen, particularly at the Sentinel and, and larger changes you see in America as a whole with small town newspapers? You know, for a while we thought small, what we call community newspapers, in contrast to New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, maybe LA Times. Um, the community newspapers were going to be healthier and be able to survive the transition to digital. That didn't prove to be to be true. What what happened was that as the cost of trying to do business rose and the lack of training uh, became paramount at small newspapers, they got the transition to digital was lost. I mean, it just was the opportunity was taken. We knew in the 1990s that we would be moving in one way or the other to the internet. Back in the mid 90s, we were already preparing for it. And, we, and yet the Sentinel was very slow to get off the ground. I and mean, then we had a lot of different initiatives that we took, including hiring an internet staff in the early 2000s that it was only going to be doing that. But it was difficult to find a guiding philosophy uh, ethic that was going to uh, allow us to succeed. And the ownership of the Sentinel, which uh, for years had been with a very benign organization out of New York State called Ottaway Newspapers, which later became part of Dow Jones, Wall Street Journal, eventually owned by Rupert Murdoch and Fox News of all things, uh, really didn't have an overriding strategy on that. On that. By the mid, I'd say 2004, 2005, we recognized it as a critical, critical area. We still had, we're making money hand over fist. Newspapers used to make a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and you know they were the only advertising game in a town without a TV station, uh, there was. And readers were still hanging on, circulation still was, was robust, but it began to shift fairly rapidly as people aged out of newspapers 
and the younger audience had no interest at all in, in picking up a print newspaper. And as issues about, you know, why would you print a newspaper and deliver it to people's homes became paramount too at the same time. The family that own newspapers or the, or the, or the uh, almost charitable organizations that own newspapers got out of newspapers at that time and began to sell off to, uh, well, in the case of Sentinel, we were sold off to a hedge fund. What became a hedge fund? Didn't start out as a hedge fund. It was started out as a, as a uh, community, uh, as a newspaper group based out of Denver that was uh, known for cost cutting, but still believed in the mission of print newspapers. But that guy went, that company went bankrupt and was taken over by one of its larger investors, which turned out to be a hedge fund. And the hedge fund, of course, put in its own cost cutting as hedge funds do. That's what they do. They cut costs you know, radically. And so, so began the descent of newspapers. Now, that hedge fund has, owns newspapers all across the country and is one of the largest newspaper owners in the country. Other large newspaper groups that own small community newspapers like Gannett have made have had gone through terrible struggles. Lee newspapers, terrible struggles. New York Times got out of the community newspaper business, Washington Post. They just concentrate on their national platform uh, medium. But community newspapers just floundered into that and, and took such severe cuts. For a while, we were uh, owned or operating under a company we called ourselves digital first and there was gonna there was this huge move to everything digital and we had all these meetings and spent all this money and it flopped miserably and they dropped the name and uh you know now we're a media news group essentially so uh and the push for digital you know there's there's good you know the sentinel today the digital product is probably just as good as it would have been if, if, if we were totally controlled by by people who were only interested in digital. But when I took over as editor of the Sentinel, I had a staff of close to 50 people. By, I mean, last year or two, it's down to I don't know, 10, 12, 10 maybe at the Sentinel. Yeah, I'd have to count, and not including me, and I'm only a part-timer working remotely, so. That's what's happened at newspaper after newspaper after newspaper. When I got to the Herald, they were in the midst of severe cost cutting. And the Herald's a union newspaper, so it became an even bigger issue. Uh, you know, I just, my final years in journalism were just in, just trying to hold back uh, whatever it was I could, or hold on to whatever it was we could hold on to, to be able to put out a, a decent publication, but it was nowhere near what we were able to do for so many years. So is it that you feel today, like, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, today, the newspaper is still quite profitable, still has a decent audience, both in print and digital. I mean, more so in digital every day uh, and has rolled out some, some pretty good digital products, including what we call the e-newspaper. So uh, people are able to, to get a replica of what a newspaper would look like if it was, you got a print edition at your house especially for older readers who like to see that not older so i like that so uh, we're stumbling along i don't see any demise coming up for the newspaper at all anyway but whether we'll be able to add enough staff to begin to add more robust coverage you know there's some competitors uh you know there's an online site a newsletter kind of type of site in santa cruz that's doing seems to be doing quite well but it's had its own struggles with staffing too so I mean, Santa Cruz is not exactly the promised land in terms of major advertisers. So, you know, you, you got to make do with uh, getting people to pay for your pay for your journalism. So, do you feel the appetite for that people have for learning about local events is decreased because of online sources? But it seems like a lot of online sources are more national, international news. Mm -hmm. But the the desire for local events you don't feel like that 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 need has has really decreased you know I, I come and go on that um you know we ran election forums for the primary election in uh in 
June and, and those, I mean, I'm sorry, in May. No, it was in March. I'm sorry, March. They moved the primary up. So in March. And and we got did not get a lot of eyeballs on those, much less people showing up for those things. So it tells me, wow, here you have an election with big issues and people like, you know, didn't care so much. On the other hand, we went through a, a really protracted debate about uh, the rail and trail in Santa Cruz County. And we were inundated with guest columns and letters and you know whatnot on that. And whenever I wrote an editorial on it, got a huge response on that. So people do care if it's an issue that hits them, they care about. And they do look to uh, local news sources for coverage on that. Any kind of disaster, of course, you can see that happening or a crime wave hits or uh, people will still look to that. At the same time, you know, it's normally older people. Young people, you would think after all this, but social media still grabs people in a way that newspapers just can't, won't, will never be able to. I don't know. Yeah. And people primarily get their news from social media, obviously, which grabs a lot of the news from places like, you know, national news sources, as well as if it's local social media, then they're going to grab it from. The Sentinel and other and other sources of news. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that gives you hope for for smaller publications? I mean, not only for the Sentinel, but for the field in general, because I know a lot of people are really talking about the demise of local journalism and the lack of uh, people learning about issues in their community. And um, you're saying the Sentinel did try to try to do that. The response was not as strong as you had hoped. Do you, do you have any kind of way as you're in the field that gives you hope for that changing? Well, I'm not obviously in control of finances of the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Um, and so whether uh, the owners of community newspapers are willing to, to up the ante a bit and bring back more reporters so there can be more broad coverage, would that make a difference? I think it would, yes. I think it would. Um, Will young people ever want to look to it? I don't know. It's hard for me to say. My own kids have no interest in the Santa Cruz Sentinel or any other news source. You know, they they get their news from social media. What can I say? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them, one of them reads uh, online publications, national national online publications. But most people are not. Let's put it this way. If you're not paying taxes and you're not worried about the school system and you're not a crime victim are you really interested in what local government does saying you should be is, is one way to put it but but the fact is unless you have a vested interest in what goes on in your community you're not really going to read what a community newspaper covers. you just aren't uh so that's a good night showing on the rail people that's an issue that people last four or five years at the, at the Sentinel. There's a, uh, a tax measure that's coming up in the city of Santa Cruz called the empty home tax coming up. That's generating a huge amount of interest. You can find issues and you just got to go with it and, and provide that coverage on that. Um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I have hope for newspapers. I think there's always a place for them. There's always going to be uh, a need for advertisers as long as the retail industry isn't totally wiped out by Amazon. That's questionable, I guess. But, uh, you know, advertisers to get their message out th through publications that aren't just seen as advertising vehicles, right? It's just it's still an effective way to reach people. Mm. Have you written yourself in the opinion um, pages about the empty homes tax coming up? No, because we still are going to hear from proponents and opponents of the tax. Um, what I do is I run opinion I've run several opinion pieces and letters to the editor. I get the community debate going, essentially stoking that fire. And then the plan then how, they usually do that for a while, then eventually we'll come out with with uh, opinion piece from the center. We'll meet with both sides and then we'll come out within the next month probably. Uh, with an opinion, uh, a recommendation, whether anybody's going to follow that, who knows. Um, a lot of newspapers have gotten out of that business. 
they don't they no longer make uh, recommendations on candidates or ballot measures. I believe that's giving up an important voice when you do that uh, in the community. Many newspapers have eliminated their opinion sections or drastically cut back. I mean, I'm only writing three or four editorials a week. I used to have seven a week I wrote, right? So, yeah, hmm. the opinion section, the two things that are probably the most read in the newspaper, however, are the opinion section and obituaries. You can always count on that. So, but. And I thought the advice columns, right? Those read a lot too. The, uh, yeah, but I'd say just a third. Obituaries probably always are number one. Interesting. You're listening to Intersections on KSQD Santa Cruz, and we're talking with Don Miller who is the opinions editor at the Santa Cruz Sentinel, has been a journalist um, for over 35 years. And um, I want to talk a little bit about this proliferation of conspiracy theories, because um, this is going on a lot. And um, you had mentioned a lot of people get their news through social media. Well, we know these conspiracy theories just run rampant through social media. Um, how do you How do you see that as a journalist? How do you try to deal with that, whether in, as a journalist or whether personally in your faith, a lot of, a lot of the conspiracy theories are, are fueled by people of faith and um, that might share your faith, but you might have kind of approached things differently. How do you navigate this climate of conspiracy theories as a journalist? It's interesting because I was a proponent of a particular conspiracy theory for many years uh, from an event that happened in my childhood, which was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I became obsessed with that issue. Hmm. Uh, I still have a library of, I don't know how many books here. I went to visit, uh, obviously went to Dallas and walked through all the sites there. I went to the uh, Assassination uh, Archives Bureau in Washington, D.C. to visit and went through, spent days there looking through stuff. And I, my mind was taken up with that was a conspiracy. I just had to understand it. There had, for me, it was like an unexplainable event. It was just, you know, this nothing in history essentially uh, could change American history so radically with one sporadic violent act. Just, I just couldn't, I couldn't accept it. I think eventually in the, mid-1990s, I'd had enough. And I was still a Christian holding on to those beliefs. I'd had enough. And I uh, read several other books, which I thought made sense. And I just made a decision. I am not going to live within that conspiracy theory. And I gave it up. Mm -hmm. I gave it up and accepted that, that, that the official account of what happened was true. Mm -hmm. There was not a CIA plot. There was not a mafia plot. The Lyndon Johnson did not order Kennedy killed. I there was you know it was not weird Cubans coming out of manhole covers who were shooting and stuff. All those things. I but it really took me some time, uh, and I spent a lot of lot of lot of evenings reading those books. I can still see it. You know, my wife thought I was crazy. Uh, so I know I understand the attraction of conspiracy theories. It allows us to to make sense of of a senseless world. Also, if you're fearful over uh, where things are going, a conspiracy theory kind of ties it up, can tie things up nicely. In what's happened, of course, now is we had a president who I believed fostered conspiracy theories. And a lot of Christians were taken in by that. I think in COVID, what we've seen happen, of course, is conspiracy theories built around COVID and vaccines and you know, and all sorts of things. And I definitely know Christians who are adamant about these conspiracy theories. Believe me, they totally believe it. We saw conspiracy theories, of course, lead to the January 6th, 2020 uh, assault on the, on the Capitol. That was conspiracy theory based. And, you know, these in general aren't mentally ill people. They are people who may not be... Uh, prone or, or uh, wanting to, to hear all sides of an issue and to consult so-called experts. Because if you believe that all the experts are part of a conspiracy, why would you listen to anybody then, right? 
It's all just part of the plot. It's, there's just no end to it. There's just no. It's just. It's just a. It's a terrible place to be, and I. I don't understand why it's so attractive to folks, but but it does make sense in a senseless world for them. And in the church, where people have always had a, a suspicion that there is some demonic force. Let me retreat on that. There are demonic forces unleashed in my belief in this world. But to believe that that public servants and, uh, you know, the medical community or whatnot are all part of some great plot. I mean, it's just, that's just not how God would, would operate. God's not trying to set up all this, this, or allowing, you know, that to happen. I just, there's a lot of well-meaning, you know, very, very good people who are, may, may not be believers, but they really believe in, in, in helping other people. And Christians have always had a suspicion of, anything outside the church and what what i saw happen was a lot of people i don't want to they're not ignorant or anything like that they're funny they're smart enough but not not doing due diligence on issues uh, and that led to you know conspiracy theories i really believe that i mean it's just they became easily swayed and then social media of course you can say whatever you want. Oh, well, I, you know, and you just sign on to that. And then suddenly you're only reading or looking at things that you agree with. Really a danger. Really a danger. I try to, even my own family, I said, don't just read stuff you agree with. You can't, you know, they get mad at me if I ever look at Fox News, for instance. Well, I want to see what people are saying. Why wouldn't I want to know what everybody else is saying? But, you know. That's, that's where we are today. And most people do not want to hear an opinion other than the one that they hold. I, I feel totally confident in saying that. Well, and you have the algorithms that come up and the more you watch certain news uh, on social media, the more you get that and sort of feeds, feeds into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting you have a, because you yourself, you know, mentioned that you were, you subscribe to a conspiracy theory for many, many years it allows you to kind of speak into that. Um, having been in that for many, many years and then finally getting out, have, have you shared that story with many people that are into the conspiracy theories of today? I should, I should, but most people who are into conspiracy theories today don't want to talk to somebody like me because <laughs> I work with the media. So, whether I'm a believer or not, I'm still suspicious, you know, still under suspicion. I did in the 1990s, however, wrote a long piece about my journey through conspiracy theories. I should bring that back. I should look for that. Mm. Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see if I can find it. Um, yeah. I, I totally fessed up to the whole thing and said, this is where the journey I've been on. And it might have been in the early 2000s, but I think it was the late 90s. Uh, let's see if that. I see if I can find that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Have you had, what have your conversations been like with people who share your, your beliefs, but are very skeptical of journalists? What have those conversations been like? You know, what's funny about that is I tend to gravitate toward people who see things like I've just been talking about, see that there's been a, a problem within the church, including pastors, including two pastors that I am fairly close to. Of, of congregations in this in the Santa Cruz community, uh, both of whom are very dismayed by what they see as a know nothingness within the church, uh, uh, a tendency to to buy into conspiracy theories, and these are evangelical churches. These are not like you know, rabidly liberal, main, you know, mainstream Protestantism churches. These are churches that you would think would be more conservative than pastors would be, but they're not. They are very dismayed by what they think is a, uh, a, you know, doctrinal issues that have come up, and that people are not, not reading their Bible carefully, not really understanding, uh, you know, the what God would have for believers, which is not to live in fear and not to live uh, in 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 absolute abject. Uh, obedience to conspiracy i just it's just yeah and the fact that that many christians back 
movements in this country that are so anti-gospel uh, astounds me. And again, I don't, I tend not having talked to people enough about that at this point. I just, I don't want to, I just, I, I don't know if I want to go there anymore with people. It's just, it's, you know, they, they identify you as the enemy essentially. So, Oh, you're part of the conspiracy, you know? So, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's a tough one. So, but I know plenty of, of Bible believing Christians who do not hold those beliefs, who do not fall into conspiracies, who do not believe vaccines are the work of the devil, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a few more minutes as a, as a journalist, you know, is seeing these things happening um, both in the, the media that you've talked about, the challenges in your particular spiritual community you're seeing, where do you draw hope from? I draw hope from my relationship with Jesus Christ, of course. I, don't, I can't have hope in institutions or in even in American civilization. I mean, all empires come, as we know, to an end. And, you know, the, as I said earlier, I do not believe in the perfectibility of human beings that uh, with just the right amount of programs or educational role, suddenly humanity is going to take this great turn, leap forward. Um, I get my hope from the gospel. And, you know, the teachings of Jesus Christ teach me that uh, there will be an end to the suffering in this world. There will be an end to uh, wickedness and evil. It'll be the end of history, too, so to speak. And I believe that. I believe that firmly. I believe as an older person in eternal life for, for believers. So, uh, so I don't live in like I believe most people live in fear of death. I don't. I mean, maybe when the last day hits, I will have that. I who knows how I'll react to it. But for now, I I'm aware of that, and I'm aware of the hope that Jesus gives us. Uh, as believers for eternal life. And I have that same hope for my family. Do I have hope for this planet and how it's gonna turn out based on where we're going? Not until Jesus comes again. I, I think things have taken a turn for the worse. That's not a conspiracy, uh, but then they've always been kind of edgy. I mean, I grew up in the, in the 70s, you know, during the Vietnam War era. Uh, the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union. And today we have, you know, nationalism and fascism and certainly rampant violence. Um, are we headed toward the last days? I would, I'd be the last to know, but uh, you know, I worry about that for my children and grandchildren. I'll say that that's the one area I don't have hope because, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a happy world right now. You know, and I'm not, I'm also not a Christian who does not believe in climate change. I think that, I think that's crazy not to, to see what's happening to our climate and the way we've changed things. I mean, spewing the amount of greenhouse gas that we do in the atmosphere on a daily basis. And yet so many Christians hold that that's yet another government conspiracy, you know. Um, so, you know, like those are concerns or worries, but I have hope eventually and knowing the hope. Uh, that God will eventually come back into this, into this experience and eventually change it for the better for all of us who follow. And I would hope all people uh, can hear that message. And that's a message that I've been able, I've been fortunate enough as a journalist to be able to write about and deliver over the years. Uh, and I'm not trying to pat myself back for that, but it was just something I felt I wanted to be able to do, and I felt God called me to do that, and I'm glad I did it, whether it got people upset or not. Well, thank you, Adam Miller, for sharing uh, this evening on Intersections for being with us today. You're welcome. Donald Miller is currently the opinion ed editor at the Santa Cruz Sentinel in California. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. 
on our website. You can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections. Intersections.